0: Learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash TalkAwayTheDark. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is
1: The Morning Shift. Yesterday, Governor Pritzker signed a bill that would bar potential employers from asking about an applicant's salary history.
2: We are declaring that one's history should not dictate one's future. It's no longer acceptable to wring quality work out of capable women at a discounted rate.
1: Women in Illinois, by the way, earn 79 cents for every dollar a man makes, and things widen even further when you take things like race into account. Wendy Pollack is the director of the Women's Law and Policy Initiative at the Shriver Center on
3: Poverty Law. She was there at the signing yesterday, and she was pretty excited. Well, it was just wonderful because we've been working on the bill for three years, and we experienced uh, the former governor vetoing the bill twice. Um, So having it come to fruition yesterday is really important and really a step in the right direction for Income equality. How much education did you have to do with the legislature to, to get them to understand
1: why this kind of a measure was so important?
3: Well, it, it, you know, it took some education, um, but once uh, folks were uh, given the facts, you know, some of the s- stats that you suggest, you know, talked about earlier, it was clear that this measure is a step in the right direction. It's not the only thing that's needed to close the the gender or racial wage gap, but it certainly is an important step.
1: I want to bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us by phone is Mary Lynn Fayumi, President and CEO of the nonprofit HR Source. Mary Lynn, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jen. Um, In your work um, in human resources, describe the ways in which asking for salary histories are harmful.
2: Well, in the past, it's just been an employer practice in order to determine one of the many ways that employers use to determine where to set a salary offer for an employee was to ask either on the application and or in an interview and then confirm that information via a reference check. But it'll be a change in Policy and procedure for employers now to remove that from the application and also to not ask about that and instead to find other ways to establish what the rate should be for any given job and then make that offer regardless of The race gender national origin etc of any of the candidates that they're interested in offering a job to
1: Wendy, just sort of connect the dots for us. When, when employers ask for salary history, how does that reinforce the wage gap that we see?
3: Well, what we see is even when uh, women try to negotiate wages over that, that lower salary kind of is a linchpin, and, and, and things don't move up too far from that. It's, it's uh, In social science, they call it anchoring bias in negotiations, and so you're kind of stuck there. Now, Illinois is now one of around 10 states to ban all employers
1: from asking about salary history. A handful of other states have banned for practice for jobs at state agencies. But most of these laws are relatively new just in the past two years. Do you think this is a trend we're going to see across the country?
3: I certainly hope so. Um, I think it is a trend, and I think it's a good one. I mean, because it's so new, um, we haven't quite seen all the you know impacts, positive impacts coming out of this. Uh, but- uh, it certainly is an important step. Mary Lynn, how do employers have to start
1: thinking about this salary question now that this element has been removed from the equation?
2: You know, it's gonna require a little bit more effort on an employer's part to make sure that they're benchmarking their wage and salaries against other competitive um, organizations in the labor market and so I would highly recommend that they participate in wage and salary surveys, that they adopt a compensation philosophy, that they determine internal and external equity so that they're able, when they post a job that's available, that they're able to determine ahead of time what it is that they're willing to pay and able to pay for that job. And then as they interview candidates and make job offers, They can certainly still ask what any candidate's salary expectations are, and then they can also communicate what the range is for that job. So it's gonna require more homework on the front end, which many employers are doing already, so it won't be that big of a change once they're able to train their managers and supervisors that this is no longer a question that they can be asking in the interview and selection process that instead that they will have to determine up front what their rate is going to be or their pay range will be for any given position. So it's going to require more compensation work on the front end as opposed to just kind of winging it when candidates say what they expect and then figure out whether or not the budget can um accommodate that rate.
1: Well Mary Lynn, it's also it's become common for employers not to include salary info on job postings. Do you think we may see a move towards that since, you know, to give candidates an idea of what the base salary might be.
2: My guess is we probably will see more of that. So that individuals can determine whether or not it's even a job they're willing and interested in applying for based on what the salary expectations will be for any given position. I think it's too soon to tell. Like you mentioned, all of these laws are have been passed within the past couple of years. And so we don't have a lot of historical data yet. But my guess is we will probably see more of that being included in job postings.
1: Wendy, this bill addresses what happens going forward, but it doesn't correct for pay gap
3: now, so how in your work are you thinking about that issue? Well, certainly the people who will benefit the most are the ones who are you know suffer the most, experience the most wage discrimination. So again, it's women generally, but uh, you know black and Latina women, you know more specifically, and black and brown men. Um, so going forward, what we hope is that because the current wage uh, shouldn't be a factor in determining what someone gets because of you know, they, they uh, are qualified for the job and, and have the skills and experience necessary for the job, then they hopefully will, will receive um, that newer salary that will, should be a big jump. But uh, quite frankly, they might have to um, you know, go in and ask for, for something. Now, if you're with a current employer, um, they, can, they can ask for your salary.
1: Mary Lynn, what does this mean, this new bill, mean for younger people entering the workforce?
2: Well, hopefully, it means that there will not be the historical pay gap that once existed, will not be as prevalent for younger employees entering the workplace because as employers set wages and salaries commensurate with the skills and requirements of any given position. They'll be offering candidates um, the exact same rate or rates within a a narrow range for any given position. So there will probably come a day as these laws sweep the country that um, it will become common practice for organizations to establish wage rates that are competitive but have nothing to do with what someone's salary history was. And for young candidates... Many of them have very little salary history um, to begin with, maybe some part-time jobs um, while they were students or as as youth. But I think eventually um, it should have a positive impact on starting to close that gap. People might
1: be hesitant in an application process to point out that they were asked about salary, even though a couple of months from now it will be against the law law
3: because they don't want to compromise their chances of getting that job. Absolutely. You know, workers are always hesitant to file complaints against their their employers or potential employers. Um, So that's common across the board, whatever the violation, whether it's, you know, race or gender discrimination, whatever it is, that's always going to be an issue. But I think what we're hoping to do with the Department of Labor is to really do a good Uh, public education campaigns so that we get up the word to employers and to workers so that they know what their rights are and they know um, what the law is and understand what what employers have to do under that law.
1: Mary Lynn, with this law opening the door wider for applicants to negotiate their salaries, what tips would you give for people who, who are thinking about this now?
2: Well, I think both employers and applicants are going to need to educate themselves as to what the competitive or going rates are for any given job. So that effective negotiations can ensue. And then to have a direct, meaningful, open communication during that salary negotiation process. And
1: and what are those mistakes people should avoid when they're trying to negotiate a salary?
2: People should definitely have some basis as to why they're stating that they believe they are deserving of a particular salary. So to just say, you know, I think I'm worth and fill in the blank $50,000 and have no basis um, is not going to be very, very effective in today's marketplace. Uh, we're in a very competitive market here and individuals need to come to the table with knowledge about their experience, their skills and what those jobs that they're applying for are paying in the marketplace. So my guess is if you have honest, credible candidates and also um, credible employers. These negotiations are going to be forthcoming and effective in coming up with reasonable rates that both employers are paying and also candidates are accepting.
1: And Wendy, you said this, this bill was just one step and getting rid of the pay gap. What are you looking at now from a policy perspective?
3: Well, there's many issues around wage inequality and uh, closing the wage gap in particular. This is one step, but other things are Well, we just raise the minimum wage, which will be important because women and people of color tend to be at the lower wage scales. But other issues like we're working for paid sick days or paid family medical leave, things that help low-income people in particular and women in particular kind of meet the needs of their families and still be able to to you know do the job. That's Wendy
1: Pollack, director of the Women's Law and Policy Initiative at the Shriver Center, and Mary Lynn Fayumi, president and CEO of HR Source, a nonprofit employers and association. Mary Lynn, Wendy, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. There's a new pilot program at the University of Illinois Cancer Center, and it doesn't revolve around a new drug. It's about a new app. The Living With app is designed to help cancer survivors manage some of their daily challenges. Now the UI Cancer Center is launching a Spanish language version of the app. Dr. Kathy Tosis milligan works for the U of I Cancer Center. So does Kareem Watson. He explains what the app actually does.
4: It's allowing us to actually include populations that are most heavily impacted, as as Dr. Tosis Milligan often says. It's not that Latinx populations are often more likely to die from cancer, but to actually live with cancer and to suffer these greater morbidities. So this opportunity allows us to actually, at the forefront of... and before the app is fully launched, allowing us to actually inform how it will impact underserved minority communities. And that's what we're really happy about at the UI Cancer Center. Um, one of our unapologetic tenets of our leader, Dr. Robert Nguyen, is to say that you have to be at the table in order to truly inform things. And not at the table after things are developed, but at the table for things like research question development, doing exactly what we're doing, piloting this. So the fact that we're able to do this within a community of clinics called Fairly qualified Qualified health centers, our Mile Square health centers, and work with several community based organizations to do this is really what we're all about at our UI cancer, UI cancer Center and ensuring that populations are at the table for every step of the process.
1: Well, one of the other things we've talked about is this issue of cultural competency mm-hmm. in care,
0: um, in research, and how does that piece of this play into the app?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I think uh, one of the things that I love about the app as we are, you know, working to um, co-develop and co-test is that this is exactly what they're trying to do. So oftentimes, you know, apps are launched every day, right? You know, tons of apps are launched every day. And oftentimes you launch an app and then it, it may be potentially simply translated uh, without regard for the specific needs of that population. And in this case, I really value, you know, Pfizer's commitment to this, um, you know, sort of co-learning that we're doing it's So that the app is not just translated, but it's addressing the specific needs and it's translated with cultural competence with the input from the community. So I I really value that. For example, they have, um, you know, a portion of the the app that is around social support where you can uh, request rides to, um, um, you know, to your doctor's appointment help with groceries. But one of the things that is important is really valued and, and, again, scientifically demonstrated is that not only giving that, or rather, learning to request and receive that help as a cancer survivor is important, but actually being able to volunteer. Voluntarism has been associated scientifically with a 20% reduction in mortality among cancer survivors. And so this is important, particularly in the Latinx community, that this uh, opportunity to be able to learn to receive and, importantly, give, give and be a part of that. And I think that this Living With app is able to provide that for those survivors as well. So building community. Mm -hmm. Building community, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's very important. Can we lay out the details of the pilot program. When it starts,
1: how many people are going to be involved?
4: Yeah, thank you so much. So we're looking to launch the pilot program early in in around uh, November or December, where we'll actually be looking at 20 patients, 20 um, Latinx populations that are living with cancer. And we define survivorship at the time from the time of diagnosis, actually until post-treatment. So we're mostly going to be looking at those populations though that are a little bit further along in their treatment more than hope ideally a year out from their treatment so we begin to really see how they can assess the app and looking at some of those daily social support things that Kathy mentioned and once we identify those 20 patients through a group of community partners that we work with we're also we're going to conduct a series of focus groups about four focus groups where we're asking those those tough questions that may not show up in some of that survey data right it may not show up in the medical records but why were you late if you missed the radiation appointment for a treatment, why did you miss it? What were some of the barriers and even facilitators as to why you were able to get through your cancer journey? Because those are the things for the the barriers we want to m- minimize and for the facilitators we want to actually increase those things. And after we conduct those series of focus groups, what I also love about this public-private partnership, we're going to be talking to providers as well. So it's, we're going to be talking to patients and providers because we understand this about the partnership and then we'll be able to take that data uh, analyze it, identify some common themes, and and those common themes will inform how Pfizer will then adapt the app to really meet some of those culturally tailored needs of um, Latinx populations. And what kind of information
1: are you hoping to get from providers?
4: Information from providers are what are some of the things that you need to inform your patients better? For example, we have one of the first community-based survivorship programs run by Dr. Susan Hong, and we get um, tons of requests when I'm in the community from survivors that say, "I went through my treatment." I had a great relationship with my oncologist, a great relationship with my radiation therapist, but now that I'm done with treatment, now what? When I go back to my primary care doctor, he or she has no idea how to ask me about side effects and risk from the treatment that I may be under. So we want to be able to tell providers, these are the questions that you should ask your patient. These are the things, some of the warning signs. We see this done in behavioral health integration, right? We're talking to providers about how to identify some of those early signs of depression, some of those early signs signs of anxiety. We want providers to be able to do that same thing for the cancer continuum. How do I identify some of those coping mechanisms when patients may not be utilizing all their resources? If you knew that patient was on a chemotherapy drug and you might not know the side effect, but did you send them for a hearing test just because that may be one of the known side effects? So we want to ask providers, what are some of the things you need to be a better advocate for your patients as well?
1: That's Kareem Watson. Also with us, Dr. Kathy Tosas-Milligan of the University of Illinois. Illinois Cancer Center. We're talking about the Living With app for cancer survivors. They're launching a Spanish-language version of the app to better fit the needs of the Latino cancer survivor community. Kathy, you're you're working with cancer survivors and with providers, but there's a family component to this as well. Mm -hmm. Explain that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the interesting things about the app, too, is that you're able to download it regardless. Like, for example, uh, you know, uh, we were kind of playing with it. I downloaded it on my phone, and this app allows the family member that is the whole uh, caring for the caregiver um, option as well to be part of your social support, be able to see when your doctor's appointments may be, learn more with you. It also has a wealth of resources that both you as a survivor and your family, Family community can look and and learn. Another thing that I actually wanted to add too, uh, that we're learning with this app and that we're conversing with providers and the patient, is the issue of language concordance. For example, explain that and how that you know how that may impact the care provided by the physicians. So oftentimes we live in an increasingly multilingual uh, population. We have a lot of uh, physicians that are you know speak various languages. However there's actually an interesting uh, nuance there in that oftentimes we don't assess your competency on that language, right? It's the kind of use it or lose it mentality. Okay. And so I think another opportunity that comes across with our testing of this app and our conversation with providers is talking about some of the challenges that they may have um, addressing those sort of nuances in the language concordance in the communication with a patient that may be lost. It's not only speaking the language, but also understanding some cultural nuances around the language in The Latino community, which happens also, for example, in the Asian groups, the Asian groups speak multiple languages. In the Latino community, we are grouped. You know because we speak one language, but we may be very different this happens with like Puerto Ricans and Mexicans for example we have right now given our political environment the issue of citizen citizenship that may come up and how that may impact the care of a survivor of a Mexican Ecuadorian or other descent right versus the issues of a Puerto Rican that has um, citizenship right and may not have to live with the fears that other Latinx communities live with every day.
1: Mm-hmm. You know Kareem I'm curious about the this increase in we're seeing in technology and and medical care and for some people there there is this concern about just sending your information out into <laughs> into the cloud and how do you overcome that
4: barrier. We actually are very concerned about that. Too, so concerned about that. Actually, we right now we actually have a survey going on within our federally qualified health center daily where we're asking our patients, how should we be communicating with you? How can we best use your smartphone to communicate with you? Because one of the things that we learned is that while there's about 87% of the population within community clinics that use smartphones, that the the usability of those smartphones varies. Some of those patient populations are using phones that are publicly provided. That may have the, the numbers change often. They may have to pay certain percentages for text messages and other things but yet we keep asking them to do more and more on their phones and so what, if we're not careful what we can be doing as well is creating what we often call a digital divide. So in our community clinic and in our cancer center we're asking how can we move technology how can we use technology but make sure it does not become part of more health inequities and we're doing that by actually going to the population that are actually using the devices and so we then come back to partners such as Fires and say, you know, some things we may want to do is offer some stipends or often some offer some compensations. We're now understanding that in the, the food realm that we often have to provide vouchers for certain foods. We may have to think about in the future how to provide some vouchers for certain cell phone uses as we go to this more mobile platform um, system.
0: And how are you measuring success with this pilot program? We have some clear metrics around like usability. Uh, we have some quantitative uh, data that we will collect from their their use that you can download. But I think also more qualitatively around um, sort of the richness of the conversation and how it may elicit you know, uh, the development of nuances within the app that, that we know based on the focus groups that would work, I think.
4: And Another quick measure um, is how we disseminate those findings back to the patient yes. populations. So we'll be able to collect rich qualitative data and saying, this is what we heard. A, did we get it right? And B, this is what the partner heard and how they're going to inform this. Are they getting it right? So that's a huge measure of success as well.
1: That's Kareem Watson and Dr. Kathy Tulsas-Milligan of the University of Illinois Cancer Center talking about a new pilot program app to provide Spanish language information for cancer survivors. Kathy, Kareem, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Watson and Dr. Kathy Tosis Milligan of the U of I Cancer Center. And that's it for today's morning shift. Want more conversations with people working to make our city and our world a better place? Subscribe to the podcast. We drop into your phone six days a week, Monday through Friday, with a bonus show on Sunday. Tomorrow we'll bring you three of the best journalists in Chicago talking about the biggest stories of the week. It's our Friday news roundup. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.